Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. A couple days ago, Louise and I were talking about Donald Trump, and, and I said, you know, it reminds me of something from when I was a kid, some movie that I saw, and Louise was like, The Music Man. And I was like, oh, yeah, The Music Man. It was like 62. I was literally 11 years old. What was it, Robert Preston? No, I anyhow, I don't I don't remember the stars. I'm sorry. I'm lousy at that. So we pulled it up. We we found it on Amazon. We you know, I thought it'd be on, on uh, Netflix. It wasn't. And we watched the first half of it. I know the second half, he turns out to be a lovable con man, but he's a con man, you know, and he's proud to be a con man. And yesterday, what The New York Times pointed out to all of us is that so is Donald Trump. Now, how does he pull this off? I think Adam Smith in his book, Theory of Moral Sentiments. This is 1759. This is a book that was read by the founders and the framers, and it actually had a big influence on the United States. Thomas Paine was a huge fan of Adam Smith. And in the Theory of Moral Sentiments, Adam Smith said, and I quote, this disposition to admire and almost to worship the rich and powerful and to despise or at least neglect persons of poor and mean conditions is the great and most universal cause of the corruption of our moral sentiments. What the New York Times has laid out is that Donald Trump is a con man. I mean, he was making $200,000 a year when he was two years old through a phony company with a phony job, literally being paid $200,000 a year. By the time he was eight years old, his net worth was over a million dollars. He was a millionaire at the age of eight. He has never wanted for anything in his life. He has no understanding of what it means to be hungry or to be financially insecure. Literally no understanding. And the the almost $500 million that he hustled from his dad, including trying to get his dad to change his will and sticking you and me with a $500 million tax bill that he evaded, which New York State says they're now checking out, it's a pretty big deal. This is not a rags-to-riches story. As of now, he has taken over $413 million from his father's estate. His father had a billion-dollar estate. And according to the New York Times, he and his brother and sister, who is, by the way, his sister is a federal judge, 
he and his brother and sister participated in tax fraud schemes that defrauded the federal government of about a half, half a billion dollars, which means that you and I picked up the bill for Donald Trump and his brother and sister's tax fraud if the New York Times is correct. That he is continuing, by the way, to receive money from his father's estate. Even though his dad died, in, in, by, the, by the time his dad died in 1999, Trump had taken $413 million from his dad. And his, he kept having businesses fail, and his dad kept stepping in to prop them up. And so now the, the uh, tax department is looking into this. What I would say is interesting, the thing that I found most fascinating, and it's a conclusion that the New York Times didn't draw, I am drawing this, was that up until... 1999, every time Donald Trump fell, his daddy caught him to the tune of millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. After 1999, he didn't have his daddy to catch him anymore. And he had some real serious problems during that era. I mean, it was in 1991 that his biggest casino failed. And this was after his daddy went in and bought three and a half million dollars worth of chips and then didn't play them as a way of laundering three and a half million dollars to the casino, which was a crime. And the New Jersey casino, casino regulators said it was a crime and they fined Donald Trump over $50,000 for it, a fine that he paid. And then in 1992, his other casinos went down, went bankrupt, along with his biggest property in New York. By that point in time, he had taken hundreds of millions of dollars from his father. But his father died in 1999 and in 2004, he ended up filing bankruptcy for the entire hotel and entertainment business. In 2004, daddy wasn't around to catch him anymore. So this is where we go to, oh, and the, and the last thing that, in fact, uh, you know, is borne out by this was that the, the, the main thing that saved Donald Trump was 9-11. 9-11 tightened up all these loopholes for money laundering because they were trying to catch Saudi money coming into the United States. So they closed all these loopholes, all these ways that you could launder money. And what that meant, this is, you know, September of 2011, these laws were put into place early 2001, 2002. What that meant was that suddenly there was all this money coming from billionaire oligarchs around the world, Malaysia, Russia, Indonesia, you name it. And they wanted to throw money into something and launder it, get it out of their country, get it out of the, in many cases, their very poor countries. But all the normal loopholes had been shut down. The banks were being monitored. What can we do? Real estate. Real estate actually has an exemption to those money laundering rules that were passed after 9-11. And guess who was in the real estate business? Donald Trump. So daddy stopped catching him and instead corrupt billionaire oligarchs from overseas, particularly Russia, but other countries as well, all bailed him out while you and I picked up the tax bill. Donald Trump has gone from having a business based on basically squeezing money out of his daddy and making it look like he's successful to having a business where he's running a, an elaborate money laundering operation, a criminal money laundering operation, and trying to pretend that he's got a successful business. And the only reason that any of us believed him was 10 years on The Apprentice. It's not actually reality TV, it's heavily scripted TV, and, and it is basically pitching the idea that Donald Trump is some sort of benevolent but tough business genius. And he's not. He's a little rich kid who keeps blowing it. This is the Tom Hartman program. And then blames it on other people and then gets people to front for him and then rips off people through bankruptcies and simply not paying bills 
The guy is a con artist. It's the music man. Donald Trump being outed by the New York Times as as a grifter, as a guy who, you know, if daddy hadn't given him over $400 million, money that he's to this day continuing to take from his father's estate, bailed out failing business after failing business after failing business. And when daddy died in 99, in 2004, Donald Trump couldn't rely on daddy, had to declare bankruptcy. But... In 2004, when he declared bankruptcy, that was three years after 9-11. And two years after, the laws were changed, making it really hard to launder money into the United States. If you're a foreign oligarch and you stole a bunch of money from your country or your company or your friends or whatever, and you wanted to launder that money into the United States so that it could be safely parked here for the day that you retire or whatever, it used to be you could launder it through banks. Remember HSBC, the bank, got busted for laundering hundreds of millions of dollars of literally terrorist money? Now, if it had been you or me doing that, obviously we'd be in prison for the rest of our lives. We'd probably be in Gitmo. But this was a bank, and so there's different rules for bankers. They don't go to jail. They don't get indicted. The bank got a fine. But, you know, that's what used to go on. And they closed those loopholes in 2002 and 2003. So there was, but they, but they left one loophole intentionally open. And that was cash sales of real estate. A cash sale of real estate did not have to be examined by banking regulators, by the FBI, by the SEC, by anybody. Cash sales of real estate were sacrosanct. They were, they were just, you know, oh, that's just somebody buying real estate. And so suddenly all over the world, there were these oligarchs who were like, you know, I got to put my money in the United States. How do I do this? Oh, real estate. And you got Chinese oligarchs buying up the West Coast, and you've got Russian oligarchs buying up the East Coast, and Saudi oligarchs buying up the East Coast. And guess who just happened to be in the real estate business and desperately needed money because daddy had died? Donald Trump. And so he jumps into bed with these oligarchs. So anyhow, back to Adam Smith and the worship of the rich. This is in the Theory of Moral Sentiments, 1759, Part 1, Section 3, Chapter 2. He says, this disposition to admire and almost to worship the rich and powerful and to despise or at least neglect persons of poor and mean conditions is the great and most universal cause of the corruption of our moral sentiments. This is from Adam Smith. He wrote Wealth of Nations. This is from his book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Speaking of ironies, mind-boggling ironies, Brett Kavanaugh was slapped with two official ethics complaints before the D.C. Circuit. And this, is, this gets real interesting. Two ethic complaints before the D.C. Circuit against Brett Kavanaugh and the judge who is going to decide these and oversee the process of investigating them is Merrick Garland. Yeah, that Merrick Garland. But there's something else that I really want to talk to you about today, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And that has to do with conservative white women. What's going on with conservative white women? Listen to this and, and let me know what you think. There's a number of scientific studies now suggesting that conservative white women 
see the world very differently from men and women of pretty much any other political perspective. Right now, you've got 70% of Republican women who think Judge Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh, Bart Kavanaugh should be on the bench. Only 15% of Republican women oppose him. That's, that's amazing. Republican women are nearly as good at denying and minimizing sexism as Republican men, obviously, but why? Why is this? Resistance Stevie tweeted me, organized religion has a profound effect on the patriarchal submissive worldview of women. There are no prominent women in religion. I would say, you know, Mary Magdalene, or excuse me, Mary, the, you know, the mother of Jesus. She's been so discounted since the 1500s when the Catholic Church went on their witch-burning campaigns. Anyhow, there are no prominent women in religion. The showbiz factor, the pageantry, is all male of the church. There are no positive gender roles in religion for young girls. By and large, I'd say that's absolutely true. There's a, a fascinating piece in the Huffington Post. The title of it is, Has Backing Kavanaugh Really Lost the Republican Party the Women's Vote? And basically, the answer is no, or at least not the Republican women's vote. And they point out that conservative white women tend to believe that gender is completely binary, that you're either male or female, number one, that men are inherently aggressive, that men are inherently selfish, and that men are inherently inclined to rapey behavior, shall we say. And that the basis of this is an idea that was first articulated really clearly in the 1800s in Victorian England and you even find reference to it in Dickens' work, that men and women belong in what were referred to in the Victorian era as separate spheres. That the man's sphere was the public sphere. It was out there doing things, making things happen, controlling things, uh, being a politician, having an income, being a lawyer, being a doctor, the external sphere. Whereas the women's role is in the interior sphere, which is the family the domestic sphere. In fact, these two spheres were in the 1800s specifically referenced as public and domestic. In fact, here's a quote from that era. Men possess the capacity for reason, action, aggression, independence, and self-interest, while women inhabited a separate private sphere, one suitable for the so-called inherent qualities of femininity, emotion, passivity, submission, dependence, and selfishness, selflessness, all derived, it was insistently claimed, from women's sexual and reproductive organization. And this is why when Donald Trump goes to a rally and talks about Christine Blasey Ford in what could only be characterized as derogatory terms for a woman who says that she's the victim of a sexual assault, this is why the women behind Donald Trump and in that rally were applauding. This is the reason why, because of this worldview, this notion that this is how things are. Here's this clip. 36 years ago, this happened. I had one beer, right? I had one beer. He's quoting Christine Ford. Well, do you think it was, nope, it was one beer. Oh, good. How did you get home? I don't remember. How'd you get there? I don't remember. Where is the place? I don't remember. How many years ago was it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What neighborhood was it in? I don't know. Where's the house? I don't know. Upstairs, downstairs, where was it? I don't know. But I had one beer. That's the only thing I remember. Right. Actually, we do know it was upstairs. <laughs> she testified to that at some length. 
But you know he can get away with it. And and literally the the you know those of you listening on the radio didn't see the picture of the women behind him, but women behind him were applauding and holding up signs that said "Women for Trump." So this is why the former federal prosecutor, Simon Powell, was on Fox News, and he said that Blasey was, quote, far from being raped. It was all a fumbled attempt to make out at a party. And, of course, you've got other Republican women, in this case, Laura Ingram, saying that she was hysterical. Christine Blasey Ford, hysterical. So what do we do with this? If Republicans are about 30% of the American population and or conservatives, let's say, and conservative women, which would be 15% of the population, hold this belief, and maybe a lot of independent women do, although it appears that Trump is losing independent women, how do you speak to them? How do you talk to them about this? I mean, this is obviously not the only issue. For example, Lindsey Graham said... I have argued to you that when you found that a judge was a perjurer, you couldn't in good conscience send him back into a courtroom because everybody that came in that courtroom thereafter would have a real serious doubt. Now, that was back when he was talking about Bill Clinton, right? He was the impeachment trial manager for, 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 for the impeachment of Bill Clinton in the Senate. So, you know, here we go, right? What, what do you do with this? Is it possible even? Or is, it, or is it that some conservative women are, are really wed to this idea, no pun intended, of I just want to be the wife of my husband who will make my life comfortable and happy and all I have to do is go to the tennis court three days a week and, and work out with my trainer. I mean, what's going on here? BlindsGalore.com was the first place you could buy custom window treatments online and because of that, they know what they're doing. They've been doing this for over 20 years and have covered over 2 million windows and know exactly how to get you the right blinds at the right price. They make it easy. They made it easy for Louise and me to go in and order. It was a breeze. It will be for you, too. Blinds Galore's products are hand-built from scratch, delivered right to your door, and created just for your windows. Their expert team is happy to help you every step of the way, either online or over the phone. Plus, they have the industry's best guarantee. If you don't like your custom blinds or shades for any reason, wrong color, you measured wrong, you don't like the style, you can exchange it for another covering for free. Blinds Galore will even set you up with 15 free samples and free shipping on top of the free expertise. It doesn't get any better than that. Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home. Go check out BlindsGalore.com and let them know we sent you. That's BlindsGalore.com. Anne in uh, Seattle, listening on KBCS. Hey, Anne, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm calling because I trust you and your staff fact-checking, mm -hmm. and I've been confounded and wondering for a very long time about the statements made about women and voting in general for Trump. Mm -hmm. And I have a education and past career in media, so I think I listen to news with a more critical mm -hmm. ear than most people. The statement I hear over and over is this statement, I think I heard it earlier today on your show, about how, you know, more than 50%, what's the percentage? 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump in the last election. Right. And, and the first time I heard that, I was just, I just thought that I was just incredulous. Right. Because what I heard was, and what I'm afraid most people hear is, and the way it's used to make a point is, 
53% of white women in America voted for Donald Trump. No, no, it was 53% of the women who voted in the election, which yes, is, which is you know, one-fifth of the population. The, those two words, who voted, right. is almost always left out of that statement. Uh, and if, then if you do the math, so, how, so what's the percentage of people who voted in the last presidential election? Right, well, it, it, yeah, it's, it's about half the, the eligible electorate are actually registered, and about half of them actually vote, so that's a quarter. And then if you added kids to make the entire population it's probably a fifth but it's a it's a small number and then it would be half of that in edward in sierra madre california hey edward your thoughts on all this hey hey tom how are you today i'm great but i'll get better how about you there you go uh tom my mom's a uh conservative republican woman and she probably defies all the uh basic stereotypes i mean she was poor when she was young she worked hard of my father, you know, built something together. And with Scott Her and my two sisters who are younger than you know, who are you know, my age, uh, oh. is the single issue. Uh single issue voters and Fox News pumping the abortion issue because you know right. we're Catholic. Uh, but isn't and, isn't a woman's right to control her own reproductive system? Uh, or or should she surrender her her uh, agency her power to a to a government agency that's basically run by men and uh, you know laws made by men to control women isn't that really a subset of this whole conservative women's idea that that you know let just let the men take care of everything i mean i think i saw this with my mother my mother was a, a brilliant woman i mean she, you know she graduated from msu sigma cum laude and she she uh, uh she was just very very smart but or i shouldn't even say but because i'm not sure it has to do with being smart she was a product of her times i mean she was born in i think 1929 and and uh, you know came of age during the great depression of world war ii and and when she married my dad, she was a pilot. She was flying airplanes. She dro obviously drove cars. She made her, you know, she put her work her way through uh, MSU as a lifeguard in the summers up in Charlevoix, where she was born and grew up. And um, but after after I was born, or maybe after my my brother Steve, two years after me was born, uh, she stopped driving. She gave up her driver's license. She basically, you know, didn't leave the house that much after that and uh, became, you know, a housewife, just a full-time, you know, she raised four boys, which was a lot. I look back and just, you know, wow. Uh, but, you know, her, her thing was, you know, Carl's gonna take care of us all, you know, my dad. And, 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 and that kind of worldview might incline itself. I mean, I've never had this conversation with my mom and she's been dead for a while now, but, um, that that kind of experience in life might incline one toward a worldview of well yeah you know men are you know kind of nasty so you have to tolerate that but on the other hand uh, you know the women shouldn't be speaking up whatnot uh, you know am I making sense Edward? I think it's the they've replaced um, the man in their life with the religion in their life and I'm a mm -hmm. I'm a Catholic I go to church but I agree with you I mean there's 
it's a decision that a woman should make for herself, and yeah. it's a decision she has to make, you know, based on her personal beliefs. But yeah, but you're saying basically that. the bottom line of, of what you're saying, Edward, is that you know, for many of these women, it comes down to the abortion issue. I get that. Thank you for yeah. the call, and and I think you you may well be right, but I think this goes way beyond that. I think that is a reflection of this. Kathy in Adena, Minnesota. Kathy, thanks for uh, thanks for listening. What's up? Hi, it's Edina. Edina, thank you. I, that's fine. I do think that um, many upper-class women are benefit from maintaining the patriarchy and that are totally willing to go along with it to maintain their lifestyle. I don't think they think about it that way necessarily, right. but I think that is a part of what's going on. But I also think that is rapidly changing with well, the younger people. Yeah, well, in part it's rapidly changing because you can't maintain a family with one income any longer. Exactly, unless you are in that uh, zone where your husband makes, you know, many Six figures, yeah. of thousands a year, yeah. yeah. And then the other part is that there's a the overwhelming number of people that support Trump. Their main goal is to see Roe v. Wade overturned. They aren't even aware of the economic risk factors that are involved in continuing to support Republicans. Because they have not encountered those risks in their lives. Is that what you're suggesting? Either that or they're, I, I work with people like this. They're just not paying attention. Oh, yeah. They're so busy working and picking up extra shifts and just keeping their head above water. They're just not as aware of it. They know he's vulgar. They know he's corrupt. But uh, until the economy really has a big fall, they're not going to grasp it fully. Yeah, well, that's, I, I think that's true regardless of gender. But to, to the issue of women, like, you know, like the story I told about my mom, I mean, it, that's, that's an ideal that is rapidly vanishing from the American scene. My dad worked in a tool and die shop. Today, I think uh, a man working in a tool and die shop would have a much more difficult time supporting a family, particularly if they were hired in the last 15 years. Um, right. And I don't think... Um, I, I think some people don't realize that uh, the overwhelming number of people support a woman's right to choose. And even if it's overturned, enforcement is going to be really difficult. You t if, if Roe v. Wade is overturned? Yes. Enforcement I mean, of what? In, enforcement of, uh, you know, of abortion being illegal. It's oh, punitive be really laws. Hard. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. in, in El Salvador right now, if a woman has a miscarriage and anybody, you know, an angry husband, a, a, a nosy neighbor, whatever, suggests that they think she had an abortion, she goes straight to prison. I mean, they, they've got, you know, many, many women down in El Salvador who are serving 20-year prison terms for having miscarriages. So, Kathy, thank you for the call. On the line with us is our old friend Greg Pallast. He is the uh, reporter investigative reporter, investigative journalist, author, filmmaker, his most recent, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, gregpalace.com, of course, his website, and you can tweet him, just like I'm Tom underscore Hartman, he's Greg underscore Palast. Greg, welcome back. Glad to be with you, Tom. So you are in Georgia right now. Tell us what's going on. <laughs> well, I just avoided a, a, a bust yesterday. I'm here announcing with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference the SCLC and uh, New Georgia Projects and, and uh, Rainbow Push that I am suing with these organizations, the Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, for removing 
hundreds of thousands of voters on the grounds that they've moved. They haven't. Um, I uh, We got consultants from the post office who assured us that uh, these people have not moved. It's another uh, blackout. And guess what? Not coincidentally, Brian Kemp, the Persian general of Georgia, <laughs> is also running for governor. Now, he, he removed one in 10 voter, uh, Georgia voters from the rolls. Do I have this right in 2017? Yeah, in, in a single year. One in ten voters of Georgia, and I'm not counting the dead or those uh, in jail. I'm, I'm saying one in ten live Georgia voters were removed from the voter rolls. Uh, cockamamie reasons. Uh, he is running against Stacey Abrams, who was elected to be the first black female governor in American history. And uh, the polls are looking grim for Brian. It's really neck and neck, but um, he's in trouble. And I guess he thinks that the only way I, I tried to ask him. I've tried to meet with him. Uh, I said I'd rather not sue him. I'd rather talk to him and get the information from him. But I did tell him, uh, so I went to, uh, he wouldn't talk to me, so I went to talk to him. Uh, I went to a, um, to a barbecue joint. You could smell the pigs. Uh, I didn't know whether they were inside or outside. Kemp's bus showed up. And I tried to talk to um, the would-be governor, uh, Brian Kemp, about the purges and about avoiding filing a federal lawsuit against him to get the information that's required by the National Voter Registration Act. So, you know, if he doesn't want to be a lawbreaker, I said, just talk to me. And if he would turn over the information to me willingly, we wouldn't drag his behind into a federal court. And I want to know if this is a racial purge. So I think that this next clip is, like I say, in the parking lot of a, of a barbecue joint. You can smell the pigs. And here comes Brian Kemp in his campaign bus. It's Brian Camp walking around shaking people's hands for those people uh, listening to the radio watching the video. Mr. Kemp, are you removing black voters from the voter rolls just so you can win this election? Please do not touch him. I'm not touching him. Mr. Kemp, are you removing black voters just to win this election? Please don't touch me or I'll have you arrested. Please don't touch me. Sir, are you, why are you purging voters from the voter Sir, why aren't you answering my questions? Sir, why do we have to sue you to get the to get the names of voters who've been removed? Why are you let go of me right now, sir? Who are you, sir? Wow. Okay. Well, you know, this is I. Welcome to Georgia. Yeah. You know, and. Wow, uh, they wouldn't even let me ask a, a question. Um, so as you, as you see, and, and uh, the papers reported on this incident later, saying they knew I that I was there, uh, at, and they they had seen me there. So they decided to literally block me, and the, and then they threatened to arrest me. The cops threatened to arrest me that are working with Kemp. Because mm. uh, they said the owner of the property wanted me off, and the owner told the papers, "No, I didn't. I've never kicked anyone off my property." But the main thing is, it's not how they mishandled me, it's how they're mishandling the voters of Georgia. I will say, Tom, that I have put up, I did get from Kemp, a response at the last minute, it's incomplete, we're still going to go to federal court, 
but he gave me the name of every person and their address that they purged. It's now up at gregpalace.com right now. If you're in Georgia, right now, go to gregpalace.com, type in your first, last name, and zip code, and find out if you are the one in ten uh, of the negative lottery where you lose your vote in Georgia. It is astonishing. Wow. How many people have confirmed for you that they still live in Georgia, they thought they were still registered to vote, but they've been purged from the rolls? Have you, have you started that audit process, that uh, contacting people yes. process? Yes, uh, two things. Number one, we, we sent out the word, and we're already getting flooded with people saying, I was removed. And so I'm right. <laughs> actually staying in Georgia to get a few of them on camera. I just really want people to get this information. Our, our lawyers are now considering whether we should seek an injunction to extend the registration period, which ends on uh, in one week on October 9. Mm-hmm. And frankly, that they should just put these names back because uh, we've checked with the post office contractors. This is not inexpensive, by the way, to do this. We've checked every single name, and overwhelmingly, almost all those people still are at their voter registration address. They, they haven't moved anywhere. And, of course, you can... The smell of Chris Kobach is not far away. Right. Uh, they are using the cross-check list as one way to purge voters. Which um, raises my last question, yeah. Greg. It, it certainly looks like this is a criminal conspiracy, frankly, in Georgia by Brian Kemp. Uh, as Secretary of State, he controls the voting rolls to purge, as you point out, one out of ten Georgians off the voting rolls, uh, presumably predominantly in communities of color. Um, and... And now he's running for governor against Stacey Abrams, uh, who would be the first black woman governor in the history of the United States. Um, But to what extent is this exact same thing happening in other Republican-controlled states? I'm assuming it's not happening in any Democratic-controlled states. We've sent 90-day notices of federal lawsuits to 26 states. In fact, I'm going to Jesse Jackson's birthday party, my co-plaintiff in Illinois. Um, And uh, uh, so we're hitting many states. Uh, Kansas, of course, and Ohio, Michigan, um, Indiana has been was real bad. In fact, one of the people said, "Oops, it looks like we missed because they had a court injunction against using crosscheck." And their people inside said, "Oops, looks like our people are still using crosscheck in violation of an injunction." It we forgot all over. Right, we forgot all over the place. Yeah, yeah. So, so the call for action here right now is for if you know anybody in Georgia, if you are in Georgia. Uh, contact them, or if you just, you know, have a, a well, if, if you, any Georgians are watching, you know, reading your Facebook feed or whatever, uh, put a link to gregpalace.com and tell these people in Georgia that they can check and see if they're on the purge list. And if so, then you've got one week to, to reinstate your, your uh, right to vote in the state of Georgia, which has been taken away by the, uh, by the white Republican Secretary of State because he doesn't want the black uh, Democrat uh, Stacey Abrams to be able to win the election. Young people, too, are really affected. It, it's kind of like Obama's campaign. It's the young uh, as much as, as black folk who are uh, backing Abrams, and they are really affected by this purge um, because they don't distinguish. They, they pull people out from moving, but they don't distinguish. As Stacey Abrams pointed to me when she saw the list, that they're removing people who moved into Georgia the new young voters moving into Georgia are being purged. Um, it is, but again... As, because they moved into the state? The worst. Hmm? Because they they're, moved they're, in into the state? Into the state. 
they have literally, and Stacey Abrams discovered this by going through my list. I've asked both candidates to comment. Stacey Abrams, by the way, did not threaten to have me arrested, just so you know. It's only <laughs> Brian Kemp. Uh, and Stacey Abrams looked at the list and said, my God, they're removing people who are moving into the state of Georgia. And she showed me the, the registration dates uh, uh, mismatched, the second date coming into Georgia. It is astonishing. It is ugly. And uh, Kemp is denying uh, that uh, uh, what he's doing, but he's given us the, at least a list of the voters. Please check your name. Yeah, there you go. Go to gregpalace.com for all the information. If you want the backstory on this, the best democracy money can buy is the film to watch. Greg, thanks so much for being with us, as always. Thank you, Tom. And, and for what you're doing. This is, this is great stuff. Greg Palast. Hi, I'm Randy, and this is Dave. We're the founders of Bombas, makers of the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. So comfortable, we've sold and donated over 8 million pairs. Yes, donated. Why? We learned that socks are the number one most requested clothing item at homeless shelters. So we started Bombas with the mission of donating a pair of socks for every pair we sell. To donate and sell a lot of socks, we became obsessed with comfort. We reinvented the sock from the ground up using the best materials available. Like the softest and most comfortable cotton. Getting rid of what wasn't working. Like that annoying toe seam you can probably feel if you wiggle your toes right now. And inventing a few new comfort innovations along the way. Like arch support that feels like a hug around your midfoot. It worked. People tried them, loved them, told their friends about them. Helping us sell and donate over 8 million pairs. Try them now at bombas.com slash Tom and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash T-H-O-M. Bombas.com slash Tom. Our book for today is Kickback, Exposing the Global Corporate Bribery Network by David Montero. This is from the introduction, chapter one. During Watergate, the appointment of a special prosecutor to investigate Richard Nixon's alleged tampering with elections was intended to mark the close of a sordid chapter in American history. Instead, that effort, culminating in Nixon's resignation, would prove to be only the beginning of a deeper political morass that America would face for decades to come. Congressional investigations would uncover for the first time that multinational corporations through slush funds and bribes were not only secretly funding political organizations at home, like Nixon's re-election campaign, but corrupting foreign officials abroad. This new perspective on the corporate abuse of power and its impact overseas would result in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, FPCA, groundbreaking legislation that, by prohibiting commercial bribery for the first time in history, sought to change how capitalism and political affairs were conducted all around the world. Now, more than 40 years later, we are experiencing a kind of deja vu as the special counsel investigates whether the president allegedly abused his power again by obstructing an inquiry into a possible manipulation of our country's elections. Just as was the case in Watergate, whatever special counsel Robert Mueller uncovers will likely mark the beginning rather than the end of a reassessment of how power actually operates in this country. And just, in water, just as in Watergate, there's the possibility that Mueller's far-reaching probe may reveal how tightly political corruption and corporate corruption are linked through bribery just under the surface of America's political life. Nixon was the recipient of secret corporate donations, which were considered illegal because they should have been disclosed. But the payments, while unlawful, did not compromise the presidential election itself. Mueller's Russian inquiry is directed at a potentially far more serious crime 
<clears throat> whether Donald Trump, the head of a sprawling business empire, colluded with a foreign power to deliberately sway the American electorate, committing the very crime that the FCPA had been trying to eradicate since Watergate, the author, the author offer of a foreign bribe, a kickback. That law specifically states that a corporate bribe need not involve an actual exchange of money. An offer of anything of value, such as a promise to a foreign government official, is sufficient to violate its terms. This is precisely what Mueller is trying to ascertain, whether Trump, his company, his associates, or his family, or some combination of them, offered a promise to Russian government officials, a quid pro quo, that if they helped Trump by manipulating the elections, Trump, if victorious, would ease U.S. sanctions against Russia. Doing so would allow greater U.S. investment of Russia and would benefit Russian officials and oligarchs, the Trump business organization, the corporate interests of the Trump family, and former members of his senior staff, including Paul Manafort, his one-time campaign chairman, and Michael Flynn, his disgraced national security advisor. If the Trump organization or anyone connected with it did make such a promise, and depending on how that promise was conveyed to Russian officials, the Justice Department would have strong grounds for pursuing an FCPA charge, among others. An FCPA violation is within Mueller's mandate to investigate, quote, any matters that arose or may arise directly from this investigation. As has been widely observed, Mueller has hired two former federal law enforcement officials with extensive experience in investigating fraud, money laundering, and overseas bribery. Andrew Weissman, who ran the Justice Department's fraud section, which enforces the FCPA, and Greg Andres, who helped oversee FCPA policy in the criminal division. The drama playing out in Washington starkly highlights the fact that foreign corporate bribery can be a deeply misleading term. We have come to regard it, when we think of it at all, as something that unscrupulous companies do in distant countries, so that any impact it has must be contained overseas. If a corporation pays kickbacks to a greedy government official abroad, why should we be concerned? But in a highly interconnected world, bound together by a global market, a global financial system, and the constant migration of peoples, goods, capital, and capital, corruption rarely stays out there. Bribes eventually harm Americans, American society, American values, and American interests, both domestically and around the world, in ways that are difficult to gauge. Why do firms resort to bribery? The obvious reason is to gain an advantage over their competitors. But illicit payments also buy the illusion of growth in the short term, of increased market share, and inflated firm value. It does not take into account the harm that this practice causes to companies themselves, sinking employee morale, diminished profit margins, and the possibility of hundreds of millions of dollars in fines and penalties, not to mention a reputation that will be associated with corruption and deceit. They also effectively steal the public's money because the majority of bribery cases involve capital-intensive development infrastructure projects such as roads, dams, defense systems, oil extraction, or mining that are publicly funded. To recoup the bribes involved in winning such contracts, companies conspire with foreign officials to inflate the costs, sometimes by 10 or even hundreds of millions of dollars. While the companies and the officials win out, taxpayers are left shouldering the burden. Corporate bribes involve a remarkable amount of money. The World Bank has estimated $1 trillion a year, although this may represent the high end. Others have placed the market at 10% of the $4 trillion spent in annually on global public procurement. The book Kickback by David Montero. 
Take one atom of nitrogen and bond it with one atom of oxygen and boom, you just created nitric oxide, a miracle molecule your own body makes that fuels your cardiovascular health, keeping you vibrant. But as we all age, our bodies need help generating more natural nitric oxide. Super Beets by Human N has harnessed the power of nutrient-enriched beets and created a superfood that helps your body make more nitric oxide on its own. The core philosophy of Human N is to develop heart-healthy products for your body. One teaspoon of Super Beats daily supports your cardiovascular health and blood pressure levels, giving you natural energy without the need of a quick caffeine kick or sugar high. We're talking real. We're talking healthy, natural energy. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats and free shipping with your first purchase. Feel the 1 plus 1 equals boom effect of Super Beats. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com today. Tom Hartman here with you. I, every now and then you read one of these posts by somebody in the, the various websites around my favorites. Daily Kos, Alternate, Common Dreams, Democratic Underground. This one is over at Democratic Underground by Lunatica, titled People Standing Behind Trump at His Rallies. And Lunatica writes, for the first time I realize who they are, and it woke me up and scares me. These are the people standing behind Trump at the rallies. They are the brown shirts, the concentration camp guards, the Gestapo, the good Germans, the anonymous callers who turn their neighbors into the state police, the people who acquired the properties and personal effects of the interned Japanese, the people who took Native American lands for themselves, the hunters of African people to sell them as slaves, and the modern-day ICE agents who are ripping families apart because it's their job. What else can they do? History is replete with these people and what they do. I don't need to list every example. People like Trump are nothing without these enablers and syncopants. We are insane to try to win these people over or even think we could. And we are the enablers if we don't fight them with everything we have. That is absolutely brilliant. Meanwhile, we put into place rules after the Deepwater Horizon killed 11 people, spilled 5 million barrels of gas into the, uh, of oil into the Gulf killed over a million birds, massive amounts of marine life. The area is still in many ways polluted and will be for centuries. And we put into place some rules, you know, because remember the blowout protector didn't work. And so the well blew out. And so we said, well, you know, in the future, if you're going to have a, you got to have a blowout protector, number one. Number two, it's got to be a kind that actually works. Can't be an old broken one. And number three, somebody has to inspect it regularly, you know, like once a year. Well, the New York Times reported that the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, which was created to stop another Deepwater Horizon, that the agency that is supposed to prevent the next Deepwater Horizon just put together a set of rules written by lobbyists for the fossil fuel industry saying that the rules that were put into place back in 2003 and 2004, quote, created potentially unduly burdensome requirements. Now, they're not saying that, that these rules stop them from drilling for oil. What they're saying is that they could. It's potential. They also say that, uh, and this is, this is mind-boggling, this is a quote from this report. Energy dominance is encouraging increased domestic oil and gas production and reduce, reducing unnecessary burdens by sh stakeholders. 
the stakeholders in this case being the stockholders and the oil companies, you know, Coke Industries, ExxonMobil, things like that. Uh, the stakeholders are clearly not the guys working on the rigs. It's clearly not the environment around the rigs. It's clearly not the people who live on the shore of the, you know, affected by the rigs. It's clearly not the people who make their living pulling seafood out of the ocean that's affected by the rigs. The stakeholders are the wealthy stockholders, period. And they're the ones that this agency uh, under Trump is saying, eh, you know, we're going to blow up the rules. They proposed a new rule that removes the requirement for independent verification of safety measures and equipment. So not only does this rule weaken safety and environmental standards, this is uh, quoting Mark Sumner over at Daily Kos, not only does this new rule weaken safety and environmental standards, it removes any requirement at all that anyone check to see that the companies are following the standard. Deepwater Horizon coming again. Meanwhile, Bart, uh, Bart Kavanaugh. Yeah, Bart. You didn't know? You know, when he was asked by the senators, uh, you know, the, your classmates refer to you as Bart O'Kavanaugh. And he's like, oh, that was a joke. Well, Bart Kavanaugh wrote in 1983 a letter to his friends as they were uh, arranging a condo rental for Beach Week. This is something that rich white boys do. Apparently very rich white boys. Uh, that, quote, someone should warn the neighbors that we're loud, obnoxious drunks with prolific uh, pukers among us. Yeah, Ralphine. No, apparently it's not just a reference to spicy food. He also says, so he lied to Congress about that. He also said, I think we're unanimous that any girls we can beg to stay there are welcome with open arms. Yeah, he said he wasn't interested in sex. He was spending all his time on the basketball team and going to, going to church. And the letter is signed F-F-F-F-Bart. Bart. And F-F-F-F, find them, something them, something them, forget them. Which is about women. And this is how he signed the letter Bart with these F's. And when he was asked about those F's before the Senate, he said, oh, that's because we had a friend who stuttered when he cursed. That's creative. It's also apparently another lie to the United States Senate. Bart Kavanaugh lied to the Senate about being Bart Kavanaugh. And yes, he actually signed the letter Bart Kavanaugh. You know, his friend Mark Judge wrote this book, and he was talking about Bart O'Kavanaugh, who was barfing in the backseat constantly. It was blacking out. And, oh, yeah. Did you know that Bob Gale, he's, I mentioned Back to the Future, uh, I think it was on last week, in fact. I, I, was it last week or Monday that we had, uh, it was last Thursday, thank you, that we had uh, uh, Congressman uh, uh, Rocca. Rocana. Oh, Rocana. Thank you. Uh, Congressman Rocana on. And I, and I said, uh, Biff, Biff Tannen from Back to the Future, is, is, it's kind of Donald Trump. And he was like, yeah. And uh, Bob Gale is the writer of Back to the Future. And he, back in 2005, uh, Nate dug this up, uh, October 2000, excuse me, 2015, said, yep, Biff was based on Donald Trump. In other news, the Trump administration is suing California to squash its new net neutrality law. California has actually passed, and the governor has signed a net neutrality law. And so now the Trump administration is saying, oh, no, you don't. You're not going to step on the profits of Comcast. No way. 
Right. And the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, you know, this is uh, this this fellow uh, Blankenstein has been uh, installed at the CFPB by Mr. Trump and his buddies. And uh, Eric Blankenstein is his name. He's the handpicked leader, Trump's handpicked leader for the bureau's fair lending division. In other words, the guy who's making sure that you don't get ripped off by your lender, whether it's your bank or your mortgage company or your credit card company or your student loans, that guy. He implied that calling somebody the N-word does not make them racist. This is, this is by the way, this is all from uh, alliedprogress.org. You can find all this stuff, Carl Frisch's organization. He claimed that hate crime hoaxes are about three times as prevalent as actual hate crimes. He said that many hate crimes are hoaxes and therefore should not necessarily be governed under the University of Virginia's strict honor system until, quote, a hood-wearing KKK member is caught. He said this in, the, in response to the notion that hate crimes should fall under UVA's honor system. Eric Blankenstein uh, argued that hate crimes are just crimes, asking what does it matter that someone got beat up just because they're black? He calls this racial idiocy when the uh, University of Virginia's Dean of African American Affairs and, and, and president of the, of the NAACP in Charlottesville, uh, he, 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 on his blog, Two Guys Chatting, Blankenstein says, so there's more racial idiocy at UVA. Well, it can't be any worse than the African city in Detroit. Bizarre. He appeared to blame a woman's right to choose as the reason for pregnant women being murdered. Yep. He thinks abortions and abandoning children in dumpsters are the same thing. He lamented that, that women can F-word someone they shouldn't have and use abortion to, quote, get rid of the problem when men can't. Eric Blankenstein, the guy running the part of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that protects you from criminal lenders, he thinks criminalizing abortion is the right thing to do. He likens stem cell research to the Holocaust. Indirectly compared John Kerry to Hitler and says the average voter is kind of dumb. They just vote based on image. It goes on from there. You can read it all over at alliedprogress.org. And of course, Donald Trump running this giant scam to uh, move his dad's money into his pockets without paying gift taxes on it. It's amazing. Welcome back. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com, Ellen Ratner's charity with regard to South Sudan, and her new book, Loving What You Do. And on the line with us is Ellen Ratner herself. Hey, Ellen. Well, hi. I'm telling you that it's interesting. The Fed today warned, uh, the head of the Fed warned that we could not deal with a deficit uh, increase uh, if that happens. And what he basically said is that tax cuts and spending increases are fine as long as the economy's rolling along, but if it isn't so fine, if the economy takes a dip. And that's a big concern, he said. Yeah, it, it also, is. <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, also, there was a volcano that went off in Indonesia. This is the same place, of course, where there was an earthquake. They're not sure whether the two are related or not. They're looking into that right now. But these poor people, I mean, it is a mess over there. Yeah. And you often see this where volcanoes trigger earthquakes or earthquakes can trigger a volcano. It's a tough Right. One. Now, it's also interesting that uh, Senator Flake, uh, who, of course, is not running for re-election and said so, 
on 60 Minutes on Sunday. He said there was no place for remarks uh, by President Trump when he made fun of, uh, of Dr. Ford yesterday at his uh, event in Mississippi. And also, then Susan Collins said, uh, and she is the senator from Maine, that it was just plain wrong for the president to do that. Do you think that's going to influence their votes, or are they simply uh, venting? If I knew how Susan Collins thought, I'd be going to Las Vegas and betting on her, but I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, she does. And, of course, it depends how much pressure she's under. Now, we do know that uh, one of the right-wing groups has taken out $400,000 of ads in uh, in uh, North Dakota, where Heidi Heitkamp is, and right. in Jeff Merkley's area in West Virginia, uh, to try and... That'd be Joe Manchin in West Virginia. Uh, Joe Manchin, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. But, but what can I do? I'm an old bat. Um, <laughs> Welcome okay. to the club. <laughs> so, um, so that is very interesting. Now, the president also tweeted on the... Now, by the way, um, I was just on a conference call, and one of the things they said is that with the Kavanaugh information that the FBI is supposedly interviewing people, but they think the White House is in charge of it, uh, although they don't know, they said that there's going to be one copy, and it would be you're not allowed to make copies of it, and it's going to be shared with all of the senators. Can you imagine one uh, 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 one document shared between a hundred people? Wow, wow. I mean, if that's true, that's just outrageous. Well, the whole thing is outrageous. The fact that the FBI has been doing this with handcuffs on, you know, and blinders, uh, is is pretty outrageous. I, I'm concerned. Um, in a way that is kind of creepy, because I'm thinking, you know, this this could be a real turning point for this country. But I'm concerned about what happens when Kavanaugh gets on the court, how Americans are going to start viewing the legitimacy of the court in a very, very different way. And well, what's that, that going to lead to? Today. Sorry, that came up today in this conference call. And also they said, listen, if you did cocaine after you were 18 years old, you were automatically excluded. It didn't matter if you were 19 years old or 18, you know, when whatever months. But once you're 18, if you did cocaine, you were automatically excluded. How is exposing yourself to somebody not an exclusionary demand right. on Kavanaugh? I right. think that's very interesting. Well, they just have to prove it. The problem is that uh, uh, Deborah Ramirez has apparently 20 witnesses, but the FBI is not being allowed to investigate Won't interview any, them. to interview any of them. Yeah. I mean, that that was, uh, I, you know, I've been on a lot of calls lately because people are interested in getting it to the press and or the press. And obviously, this is just staggering that yeah. the FBI won't interview people. They think they're getting directions from the White House. Yeah, well, they are. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, apparently quite clear. And the White House is refusing to release the, uh, the marching orders that they gave the FBI. What else is going on in the right. world, Ellen? Well, okay, so the president tweeted this morning on the New York Times investigation on his, uh, his, his economy and what he did. Now, it's very interesting. The New York Times actually was able to get this information, part of it, their leads, from his sister, who is a federal judge, and she had to submit something under oath to the Congress when she was appointed. Right. And she said that she had gotten this money. Uh, so this is really interesting. The New York Times went and they got this. And that's how they were able to open up this investigation. 
Now, yeah. also, I'm on the rep- board, and I like to say this, of Reporters Without Borders. We're very concerned about a reporter, a Saudi reporter, who is anti the uh, Saudi administration, who went to the uh, mission in Turkey, uh, to the consulate, uh, to get something because he wanted to get married. And all of a sudden, he's missing. His girlfriend waited outside of the consulate all day, all night, did not come out. Also, the United States has been asked by the by the uh, International Criminal Court, which President Trump said was illegal and they didn't pay any attention to, uh, to lift sanctions on Iran for humanitarian reasons. But now the question is, will the United States pay any attention to what the ICC says? Yeah. Yeah, we're yeah, we're we're blocking humanitarian efforts in that region uh, if they may benefit Iran in any way. And that's that's pretty grim. I mean, you know, feeding it's, kids. It's very, very grim. Yeah. Also, the World Trade Organization uh, director was interviewed by a radio host today, and he said that he has never spoken with President Trump, that he speaks with all these world leaders all the time, that he has never spoken with President Trump. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. So the other interesting thing is the United States has the question is whether it's going to put any sanctions on India because Russia is selling its missiles in Syria. And now the question is, will they sell them to India and will the United States put sanctions on it? Whoa, that would be interesting to see uh, India start to change allegiances. They're certainly getting a lot closer to China right now. And uh, well, Trump is not helping that. Yeah. Ellen Ratner with Talk Media News. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you. Great talking with you. Goatsfortheoldgoat.com and loving what you do. Greg in Toledo, Ohio. Hey, Greg. If high crimes and misdemeanors, when they were written, referred to lies, among other things, in the military, and if you lie consistently and incoherently in the military, you are ultimately prosecuted. Why is a commander-in-chief who lies routinely every day, it's not even a secret, even the Republicans know that, why is he exempt somehow from lies being a high crime and misdemeanor? Because he's not covered by the Uniform Code of Military Justice. He is covered by constitutional law, and there is no law against politicians lying, as, we, as we've all got to figure it out. And Donald Trump is a politician. It would be great if there well, I'm not sure if it would be great if there were or not, but, you know, and I think that there is a fairly high level of, of accountability to which Trump is being held by the media. The Washington Post documenting his thousands of lies, his dozens of lies every single day. Sarah Huckabee Sanders' lies, the lies of his cabinet officials. It's pretty breathtaking, and it's all there. I mean, it's, it's not hidden. So I'm not sure that we need laws around this. We just need better reporting. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same bat time, same bat place. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.